Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, last Sunday night, I'm not sure how many of you were here, but last Sunday night we looked at the story of Jesus and the demoniac, or Jesus and the demon-possessed man, as told in Mark chapter 5. And ultimately I said it was a story about transformation, dramatic transformation at every level, mind, body, and soul, that having met Jesus, that man's life, and we're never actually told that man's name, but that man's life is totally changed. The contrast between before and after, between pre and post encounter with Jesus is striking. And as a result of that encounter, many people, his family, friends, and the local community are just amazed. But in terms of what happens next to that man, Where does his story go from that day and from that experience? Well, the truth is, we don't know. We're only left to imagine. Tonight, we come to another story of transformation. Again, a very dramatic one. And again, the contrast between the old and the new life and the new destiny is striking only this time. Not only is the identity of the person revealed, but the rest of his story, or at least a significant part of it, is told for us and to us in much of the rest of the New Testament. And in terms of our Essential Word series, and if you're here visiting tonight, what we're actually doing as a church is that we're working our way right through the big story of the Bible in a year. And if there ever was a milestone moment, here is one of those, a critical turning point, and that is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. And to emphasize just how important this event is, the story's narrator, or the writer, Dr. Luke, tells it three times in Acts of the Apostles. He tells it in chapter 9 for the first time, and that's where we're going to look at this evening. But he repeats it in chapter 2, And then once more in chapter 26. Now the thing about Dr. Luke is he's generally known as a storyteller who doesn't waste words. He gets to his point quickly. He doesn't embellish unnecessarily. And therefore, if he went out of his way to record this event three times, then it's clear that he wants us to realize how crucial this is in the history of God's dealing with humanity. One Bible commentator writes, Only an event of greatest importance would merit such repetition by an author whose hallmark is brevity and concision. Now, concision, by the way, means, and I had to look this up, it means brief but comprehensive. And normally Dr. Luke was brief but comprehensive. Well, not regarding this incident because clearly... It was an exceptional landmark moment. If you have a Bible, please do turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Uh, It's page 1102 in the Bibles that are in the pews. But it starts with this comment. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And very quickly you realize that this person, this man, Saul, is not a big fan of Christianity. And his disgust and his depth of feeling regarding it spills out 
and goes beyond mere emotion. He verbalizes his hatred and he expresses it in action as he hunts down those who belong to the way as Christianity seems to be described in verse 2 there. Now, again, those who have been journeying with us through this big story will know this is not the first time we meet this man called Saul. If you flick back to the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, you find him looking after the coats of Stephen's killers. But he's not just present, he's complicit in the horrendous execution of Stephen, who's described as the first Christian martyr. Dr. Luke writes, And Saul was there giving approval for Stephen's death. So this young man, Saul, is a relatively nasty piece of work. But just to echo something that has come up and been said here on quite a few recent Sunday nights, as we reflected on the London riots, as we reflected on the story of Jonah, and last week, as we thought about the healing of that demon-possessed man, no one is beyond the reach of God's love and forgiveness. Not even those who breathe out murderous threats and for me that's amazing amazing because Saul would later describe himself as the worst of sinners and I'm pretty sure that we can all think of people who we might like to tag with that kind of a label that the worst of sinners I know we kind of shouldn't do it but we do it but Paul, Saul's story reminds us that even they, whoever they are, are not beyond redemption. As it turns out, Saul is on a journey, a literal approximately 200 mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. And he has a very specific purpose in mind. According to the text, it's to round up the followers of the way and drag them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. But as he approaches Damascus, his best-led plans are wrecked. Because he's confronted by a non-natural phenomenon. Normally can't say that word. That's good. It's this light that flashes from heaven. And it flashes all around him. And he hears a voice. And it speaks his name. And again, for those who've been following this series and know the big story, there's something vaguely familiar about this incident. Because if you rewind the story back to the very second book of the Old Testament, you could say that Saul's experience closely parallels Moses in Exodus 3. An unnatural phenomenon occurs, a voice speaks, and it repeats his name. And that particular conversation with Moses changed everything. And as we're about to discover, so did this one with Saul. The voice says, Saul, repeats his name, Saul, why do you persecute me? So this, and this would have taken Saul by surprise, this is personal. Not just because the voice addresses Saul by name, but because the voice says, me. Which is why Saul then asks a very obvious question as he lies face down in the road. Who are you? 
And the response he got must have sent shockwaves through his system. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And you see, the answer meant two things. Two rather disturbing realities for Saul. First, that while Saul was hitting the church, this Jesus was actually feeling the pain. You see, whenever the church gets a kicking, which it so often does, it's Jesus who feels it. And after all, as we discover in the big story, the church is described as what? The body of Christ. Which even as Christians is worth remembering. That whenever I have a go at the church, however we do that, probably verbally rather than physically, but as we talk about other Christians and denominations and expressions of discipleship, we need to be careful to realize that Jesus feels it whenever his body is abused. We may think we're only hurting and commenting on other people, but actually there's so much more to this. And the second issue for Saul to face and attempt to come to terms with was this jolting discovery that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. That actually his disciples were right in proclaiming and shouting about this resurrection from the dead. Now I know that there are some who make a big deal of the fact that Saul, if you read the text there, only seems to have heard a voice. That he didn't actually, it seems, see anyone according to Acts chapter 9. And if you look at verse 7, you read that those who were with Saul only heard a sound, but saw no one. But actually, if you flick over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you find Saul writing about the resurrection of Jesus. You don't need to do it. Sorry, it's on the screen in a minute. You find Saul writing about the resurrection of Jesus. And he, in that chapter, refers to all the people who saw Jesus. So he refers to Peter. And he talks about the twelve. And then he refers to more than 500. And then he refers to James. And then he refers to all the apostles. And then look at what he writes in verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also. You see, Saul was clear about what or who he saw that afternoon. The risen Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And his life was then sent on a completely different trajectory. He was forever changed, converted. And I kind of want to stop there in the story as such. Because although there is no doubt that this was an atypical conversion, this was a unique to Saul experience. There are also aspects of his story that are typical and are integral to all conversions. And so based on the rest of Acts chapter 9, I want to highlight seven features of Saul's conversion that virtually every Christian shares with him in their own stories of transformation. So let's run through these pretty quickly. The first is the reality of what is being called, and I do love this phrase, the divine initiative in conversion. You see, Jesus found Saul. 
as opposed to the other way around. Saul was not looking for, he did not go to Damascus searching for Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. But Jesus sought him out, pursued him, located him, turned his life around as well as upside down and inside out. And maintaining this biblical truth and this perspective reminds us that a rescued and a renewed life is nothing short of a gift. An absolute gift. We don't deserve, not one person sitting here this evening deserves to be converted. We do nothing to warrant it. The hound of heaven tracks us down and realigns our thinking and redirects our lives and reshapes our priorities and refocuses our vision. And that's what? That's grace. And as Saul writes later, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. Just in case anybody would think of boasting. It's a gift of God. Now I know that this emphasis on divine initiative can and does create all sorts of other extra additional questions and issues for lots of people. This sort of talk sends theologians' heads spinning. Where and when does human inquiry and responsibility kick in? And I recognize all of that. I'm not oblivious to the challenges that this idea of the divine initiative creates. I'm not naive about the hurdles it raises. But I want to stress and hold tight to the idea and picture of a God who pursues us. A God who takes the initiative who takes the lead, who sets out to save. And one of the main reasons for that is because it gives me hope. This gives me hope. You see, if the initiative lies with a gracious God who can transform the worst of sinners, then I will not lose heart regarding the fate of people today. I will not. They may seem to me to be increasingly uninterested, even determinedly resistant to the Christian faith. But if God is the one who takes the initiative, then I can remain hopeful. Saul was converted as a result of divine initiative, and so was I. That much we have in common. Second shared feature, a personal encounter with Jesus. Granted, Paul's was dramatic, Relatively exceptional, but a personal engagement with Jesus Christ is crucial for every transformed life. Christianity without Christ is obviously a nonsense. And the need to face up to and confront the life, the teaching, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is is vital. In Saul's story, he met Jesus. And in every conversion process, there's got to be this coming together. The context will be different. Of course it will be different. The specifics will vary. But the need never alters. And that's why the church, that's why this church has got to consistently and constantly present, exalt and raise the profile of Jesus. That's why courses like Christianity Explored actually attempt to do what? To introduce people to Jesus. Not to a church, to Jesus, because he is, we believe, the way, truth, life, 
Saul's conversion involved a personal encounter with Jesus. And so has every conversion ever since. Third thing. The role of others. Do you know, whenever anyone is given the opportunity to tell their story of how they came to faith, how they started out on the Christian life, the influence and impact of other people is always mentioned and referred to. Most of them will recall people who have been and possibly still are significant, people who were there at the beginning, people who helped them take their first few steps on the journey, people who introduced them to church, who prayed for them, who prayed with them, who were there for them when they needed them, people who believed in them when maybe others didn't. And in Saul's story, there were people just like that. And in Acts chapter 9, there's at least two mentioned, Ananias and Barnabas, two godsends, literally who were there in Saul's life and spoke into his life at just the right time. Because as Saul was reeling from what had happened to him on that road, God provided two men to help him make sense of his newfound faith. Now Ananias was initially deeply suspicious of Saul, and understandably so. His reputation went before him. Ananias had heard about Saul's treatment of Christians. He had heard about what he had come to Damascus to do. But God softened his heart and gave him the courage to actually help this new convert. And so whenever Ananias meets Saul, the first words he says to him are these. Brother Saul. And that must have been music to Saul's ears. Here was someone who accepted him. Who was there for him. And Barnabas was another He was back in Jerusalem, and as you can imagine, the rumor mill had been working over time. And so whenever Saul returns to Jerusalem and he tries to join the local disciples, they're suspicious of him. They're afraid of him. And so Barnabas steps in, and he sticks an arm around Saul's shoulder, and he actually tells Saul's story for him. And he tells how Saul has seen Jesus, and how he has spoke not only to Jesus, but then went and spoke for Jesus. And so Barnabas welcomed him, believed in him, encouraged him. And it's clear from the text that Paul actually felt accepted. And I'm absolutely sure that every single, I know many, most of you are Christians here this evening, but every single Christian sitting here could identify someone. Someone who has been profoundly influential in your conversion process. Someone who was fundamental in your coming to and growing in the Christian faith. And we should thank God for them. I know I do. Saul had people like that. The role of others. Fourthly, the thing we see here is this call to suffering. It's common to all of us. Although in so many ways, I know we we wish it was different, but the Bible teaches that it's indispensable in terms of authentic Christianity. And right at the start of of his Christian journey, Saul's informed, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer because you bear the name of Christ. And as we all know, that becomes a major aspect of his story. And although Saul went on to encounter more suffering, certainly more physical suffering than the majority of Christian disciples, we must never forget 
that the conversion process involves a call to suffering. And whenever Jesus explained what was involved in following him, he said, listen, you've got to be prepared to take up your cross. And he also said that if people persecute me, then if you're my disciple, you've got to expect to be persecuted. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, we discover time and time again that suffering, if you've gone through the conversion process, is inevitable. 2 Timothy 3.12 Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. But although it's a core feature of conversion, it would be wrong and dangerous actually to see it only in a negative light. Because if you think back a few weeks ago to the part of the big story when we looked at the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I kind of love this quote. God will not look you over for medals, diplomas, or degrees, but for scars. Do you know, in Saul's life and body, there would be an ever-increasing presence of scars. But during his conversion process, he was warned about that. He was told about that, that that would be his experience. And all Christians who are transformed by Jesus receive this calling. The fifth component. Present in Saul's conversion and present in ours is the commission to witness and to serve. You see, the two go together, transformation and transmission. This is not an individualistic experience for Saul to simply savor and keep to himself. He's told, he's instructed, you know what you've got to do, Saul? You've got to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. That's your commission. And again, every Christian who's been transformed receives a similar commission. Go. Go and share the good news. Go and be his representatives, his ambassadors. Go and show mercy to your neighbor. If you've gone through the conversion process or you're going through the conversion process, you're commissioned to witness. And Saul grasped this and out of his Damascus Road, his life-changing encounter, he immediately, or at least it would seem he immediately just went and started telling people that Jesus is the Son of God. Saul's conversion included a commission, and so does ours. The final two aspects of Saul's turnaround, and that most, if not all of us share, is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he was baptized. They're both in there in verse 18. And each person who is going through this process, according to Scripture, is given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who dwells within. And then we are encouraged to be baptized as a symbol of a transformed life and as a public witness to Jesus. And this morning, we watched five people baptized as part of their conversion process. And so there you have it. Saul's Damascus Road conversion was dramatic. It was amazing. It was in many ways unique to him. It was atypical. 
But actually, when you think about it, when you take a step back and you reflect on it, you discover, or at least I want to suggest, that there are seven features that are actually typical of all our conversion stories. And if you're a Christian, I want you to rejoice in that. If you are a not yet Christian, then I hope that this might explain what is involved in being transformed and being given a brand new life.